We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to the unbelievable truth, the panel show about incredible truths and barely credible lies. I'm David Mitchell. Tonight our panellists will be attempting to spot the tiny drop of truth in the suspicious British cyclist urine sample of lies. <laughs> But before we go any further, I have a very important message for everyone listening to this show on tablets. Get well soon. <laughs> we have some old friends on this week's panel. Please welcome Graham Garden, John Finnamore, Lou Sanders and Henning Vane. <laughs> the rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five hidden truths which their opponent should try to identify. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth, or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. First up is John Finnamore. John, your subject is the police, the civil force of a state responsible for the prevention and detection of crime and the maintenance of public order. Off you go, John. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you. The world's first police force was created in Padua in 1501 by the astronomer and statesman Nicholas Copernicus, hence the word copper and the expression, you're nicked. <laughs> Similarly, in this country, we take our affectionate slang words for police officers from the founder of the Bow Street Runners, so pigs were filth. <laughs> the Thames River Police was established in 1728 to crack down on illegal gambling along the river. In response, gambling dens began employing someone whose only job was to swallow the dice in the event of a police raid. Graham. I'm sure that's true. They were called dice swallowers. It is true, and that would have been an excellent name for them. <laughs> they were hired in English casinos, and I believe the same happened in 20th century America, where gambling remained illegal in many states. The expression, no dice, is believed to derive from this practice, i.e. no dice, no conviction. So when they went to the toilet, they were like, are you going for number one or two? They don't know. <laughs> Police officers in the Dumfries and Galloway Constabulary are obliged to sing you a lullaby if you ask them to, and handcuffs, horses and helmets can be borrowed from the Metropolitan Police. They will also allow you to rent tasers, though the charge puts a lot of people off. <laughs> police dogs in Britain are assigned an honorary rank one level higher than that of their handlers, so that any abuse of the dog officially constitutes an assault on a superior officer. Henny. Are they ranked higher than the handler? Uh, no, they're not. No. <laughs> I think if, you, if you think about it, it would be unwise to be... Why? To be outranked by an animal. <laughs> Officially, the human outranks the dog in that relationship. As in, you know, the world, really. I mean, that's not saying it's right, but that is the system. Dogs don't have the vote, for example. Well, neither do I, funnily enough. <laughs> Graham's not buzzing in with stupid guesses. <laughs> no, yes, no, Graham. I'm Why aren't you buzzing in with stupid guesses? <laughs> I'm waiting for the correct one. <laughs> well, uh, here comes one now, Graham. OK. <laughs> Fingers ready. <laughs> in 1999, Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers of the band The Police snuck onto the pyramid stage at Glastonbury while the fun-loving criminals were playing and pretended to arrest them. <laughs> Unfortunately, the criminals didn't recognise the police and called the police. Even when the prank was explained to them, the criminals failed to see the funny side and pressed charges. As the police were led away by the police, Stuart Copeland told the press, I knew they weren't really criminals, but I'm disappointed they're not even fun-loving. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now then, as Henning knows, the most popular detective show in Germany is buddy cop drama Spite und Wenski. Dieter Spite follows the rules and does things by the book. So does Claudia Wenski. <laughs> Typically, the crime is solved in the first five minutes, and the rest of the episode is taken up with the correct filing and filling out of the paperwork. <laughs> How it should be. <laughs> the largest police holding cell in the world is located in the Southern Hemisphere and is called Australia. In 2013, the Maldives police detained a coconut on suspicion of boat rigging. After an incredibly physical interrogation, the suspect finally cracked. In Japan, police carry massive futons to roll up drunks in. Great. I think the Japanese police probably carry something similar to roll up drunks in. You've waited for the true thing again. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. <laughs> yes, the approach of the Japanese police when faced with a drunk and violent individual is to de-escalate the situation. They do this with the aid of giant futons, which they use to roll the person up into a, <laughs> into a type of human burrito <laughs> before carrying them back to the police station to calm down. Ancient Roman riot police covered their armour in hedgehog-like spikes and would run directly into groups of troublemakers. In modern times, riot police have had to be deployed at a speech by Gandhi calling for non-violent protest, at the launch of the first ballpoint pen in the United States, and at a Cape Town concert by Australian children's entertainers, The Wiggles, when they refused to do the wheels on the bus and the crowd turned ugly <laughs> and began throwing boxes of Ribena and rusks. <laughs> I'll have to headshot them, please. <laughs> so now, Henning, you're saying that ancient Roman riot police cover their armour in hedgehog-like spikes and would yeah. run directly into groups of troublemakers? Absolutely. That's not true. Right. <laughs> ancient Roman riot police, or cohortes urbani, attacked gangs and mobs with clubs. That's a lesson for us all, I guess. It's only a sort of a moral qualm, isn't it? I don't mm. think many people doubt the effectiveness of clubs. Yeah. Nobody goes, well, I think it'd be fine to use clubs, but would they work? <laughs> uh, so none of that was true. John? I shot the sheriff, and I also shot the deputy. I don't leave loose ends. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> and... At the end of that round, John, you've managed to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel, which are that horses can be borrowed from the Metropolitan Police. They cannot. <laughs> well, you, I mean, I, I'm not surprised you wouldn't believe it, because you didn't. <laughs> the Met loans out retired horses that it still owns and looks after. Ex-Sun editor Rebecca Brooks famously borrowed a horse from the Met of called Raisa, returning the horse after two years. And I think... David Cameron had a ride. I mean, on the... <laughs> the second truth is that in 2013, the Maldives Police Department detained a <laughs> coconut on suspicion of vote rigging. The Guardian reported, the coconut, described as young, <laughs> was found near a school that would be used as a polling station. A magician summoned by police established that the coconut was innocent, local officials have said. Uh, the third truth is that riot police have been deployed at the launch of the first ballpoint pen in the United States. At Gimbel's department store in Manhattan in 1945, the Reynolds Rocket sold for a price of $12.50 each, around $166 in today's money. 
Despite the price tag, Gimbals were stormed by around 5,000 frenzied shoppers and riot police were dispatched to the store to contain them. And that means, John, you've scored three points. <laughs> OK, we turn now to Henning Vane. Henning, your subject is submarines, vessels that can be submerged and navigated underwater, usually built for warfare and armed with torpedoes or guided missiles. Off you go, Henning. Submarines were invented by Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so that he could keep an eye on Noah. <laughs> Lou. Well, in a way, everything's invented by Jesus, isn't it? If... <laughs> Very much depends on your philosophical standpoint. <laughs> yeah. I believe Jesus was after Noah. Not in the sense of chasing him. Yeah, sure. <laughs> However, Jesus ran aground off Hastings in June 640 BC. <laughs> and he had to get a room for four nights at the Royal Pavilion Hotel, which hasn't been refurbished since. <laughs> the first submarine was built in 1620 and was propelled by oars. Their names were Candy... <laughs> uh, Candy, Gigi, Roxanne and Stricter Lane. <laughs> It ran aground off Hastings in 1621, and they all found work at the Royal Pavilion Hotel. <laughs> the first country to have a submarine fleet was Switzerland, <laughs> which kept five vessels made of wood at Lake Constance. Two of them caught fire during an upraise key fondue party <laughs> for William Tell's birthday <laughs> in 1795. Since then, wood has been a no-no on submarines, unless you're in the French Navy. All of their submarines have wood panelling and a fish tank in the officers' quarters. The fish... John. I like the idea of a fancy French submarine. Is it a thing that exists? It is a thing that exists. Excellent. Yes, in French nuclear submarines, the officers' rooms are done out in panelled wood and have a fish tank. <laughs> By comparison, British nuclear submarines have their officers' rooms fitted out in Formica because it's less of a fire risk. Yeah, interestingly, the fish all have the rank of able seamen. <laughs> so that after a catastrophic accident, the French government is able to claim that there are some surviving crew members. <laughs> Well, it may surprise you to learn just what various nations can accommodate on a submarine. The North Korean submarine, Glorious Destiny Unicorn, <laughs> has a tractor museum. <laughs> Russian submarines have saunas and plunge pools. Submersible vessels of the German Navy each have a beer hall, a fully functioning red light district and a tax office. <laughs> Lou. I, I do believe the saunas and plunge pools. Tell me I'm right. I know you it. are right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Officers' rooms on Russian submarines at 124 metres, the longest submarines in the world, boast plunge pools, saunas, solariums, gyms and a winter garden. <laughs> they once had a small zoo with parrots and canaries. However, the birds did not react well to submersion. <laughs> <laughs> Henna, carry on. <laughs> Imagine if 
Henning wasn't really German and it's all an act, a character act. Well, we know that because we've talked to him in the dressing room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just his, his natural Geordie accent's even harder to understand. <laughs> I'm by I, a mum. Anyway, so the best submarine battle from the German point of view was the Battle of May Island, in which two British submarines sank each other and three were badly damaged without the Germans even being there. John. That sounds like us. <laughs> That's absolutely true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the, the Battle of May Island in the Firth of Forth is the name given to a disastrous series of accidents that occurred during the First World War in 1918 amongst Royal Navy submarines and ships on their way to exercises in the North Sea. Five collisions occurred between eight vessels, two submarines were lost, and three submarines and a light cruiser were damaged. 104 men died, and no enemy forces were present. So it wasn't really a battle, and is only referred to as such with black humour. Henning. German submarines were so good, they were like Tutankhamun or Montezuma or Lord Asbestos of Essex. <laughs> They're still killing people long after their heyday. <laughs> The U-118 was captured by the British, who somehow managed to lose it before it washed up right opposite Hastings Royal Pavilion Hotel. <laughs> and the U-118 became an impromptu tourist attraction on Hastings Beach, where, despite being beached and crewless, it still managed to kill two British tour guides. <laughs> John. Did it wash out up in Hastings and kill two tour guides somehow? It did indeed. Oh. Yes, well done. When the people of Hastings awoke on the morning of the 15th of April 1919 to see one of the Kaiser's U-boats on their beach, thousands flocked to see the submarine, and the Admiralty allowed the town clerk to charge a fee for people to climb on the deck. Two members of the Coast Guard were tasked with showing important visitors around inside the submarine. However, the visits were curtailed when both men fell ill and died. The cause was later discovered to be chlorine gas, which had escaped from the submarine's batteries. Um, and that's the end of Henning's lecture. And at the end of that round, Henning, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, oh. which is that the first submarine was built in 1620 and was propelled by six oars and sealed against the water by a covering of greased leather. It was built by Cornelius Drebbel. It was made of wood and was demonstrated to King James I and thousands of Londoners on the Thames, and it could stay submerged for three hours at a depth of 15 feet. And that means, Henning, you've scored one point. <laughs> Next up is Lou Sanders. Lou, your subject is books, sets of written, printed or blank pages fastened along one side and encased between protective covers, also available in electronic form. Off you go, Lou. OK, books. It's been proven that the more comic books you read, the more likely you are to be a virgin. <laughs> War and Peace started as a bet. The bet was to write a really long, boring book, and what do you know, Leo Tolstoy won. <laughs> uh, in 1976, more Geoffrey Archer books were stolen from the UK libraries than any other year. 1976 was also the year that there was a national shortage of toilet roll. <laughs> Henny. Well, say he was the most popular writer back then, so it's quite likely that libraries had quite a few of his books, so, yeah, he was nicked more than anyone else. <laughs> uh, it's not true. Oh, well. just to, um, 
you know, it was before his heyday anyway, wasn't it? I'd say his heyday of his writing success would be, I'm going to say, 1982. It could be yet to come. Let's not limit him. Oh, yes, it could be yet to come, <laughs> yeah. um, OK, books used to be bound in human skin. This stopped around the time that everyone realised it was, A, disgusting, and, B, paper was on the whole cheaper than killing someone to have a little read. John? I think there's been at least one book bound in human skin. I said books. Oh. Yeah, um, I think there have been more than one book on <laughs> <laughs> human skin. Yes. Um, you're both right. I don't know what to do about the points here. I think you probably both get a point, because uh, obviously it's basically John's buzz, but also Graham was so pedantic that it, I, I feel that needs to be rewarded. Um, yes, covering books in human skin, known as anthropodermic bibliopagy, was quite a popular practice in the 19th century. One of the few surviving examples in the UK is owned by the Bristol Record Office and made from the skin of the first man to be hanged at Bristol Jail. Its embossed dark brown cover was made with the skin of 18-year-old John Horwood, who was hanged for murder. Mm. Yeah, it's not very nice, really. <laughs> at least it was someone who was hanged for murder rather than for stealing a loaf of bread. And it's yeah. good to recycle. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, he wasn't killed just to bind the book. That's, That's the same thing. Yeah, they, they were killing him anyway, so, yeah. Maybe he had a donor card. Please put this on a book. <laughs> OK. Maybe Wait. I'll get one. Actually, yeah. I'll get a you donor card. Be... I would like to be used As to a bind a set of, say, Geoffrey Archer books. <laughs> I could have, you know, my sphincter right where his name goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, in the crazy olden days, books that were considered bad were sometimes whipped, which would have really played into the hands of the S&M books. <laughs> George W. Bush said that as a kid, his favourite book was The Very Hungry Caterpillar, but unfortunately for Georgie Boy, that book came out when he was 23. Still, <laughs> could be true. Graham. I think that is true. That's absolutely true. In 1999, Pizza Hut canvassed America's 50 governors for the titles of their favourite childhood books. George W. Bush offered up more titles than any other governor with The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle at the top of his list, though it was published in 1969 when Bush was 23 years <laughs> old. Luke. Um, the following books are available right now on the Tax Skeptics website Amazon. The Ladybird Book of Ladybirds, The Penguin Book of Penguins, The Pegasus Book of Horses, The Virago Book of Lesbians, The Big Book of Lesbian Horse Stories, <laughs> My Wookiee Book by the bloke who played Chewbacca in Star Wars. <laughs> uh, the Only Way is Essex is based on a novel by Dorian Gray. <laughs> the thing is, people think Essex is full of dummies, but they've got more book clubs in the UK than anywhere else. Um, John. Yes, they do. They do? Oh. Yes, yeah. Via their libraries, Essex's local councils run or have given birth to more book clubs and reading groups than any other authority in the UK. Essex libraries claim to support over 700 book clubs, and with a population of 1.8 million in Essex, that means one reading group for every 2,500 people. Um, every Saturday, I used to work in a library in Broadstairs. One day, this guy came in and he asked if we got that book on small penises. And I said, I don't think it's in yet. And he said, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> but can I just say, also, no shame if you have got a small penis, because actually, you can do great stuff. <laughs> John and Graham buzzing in for that. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, and uh, thank you, Lou. <laughs> Uh, and at the end of that round, Lou, you've managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, which are that books that were considered bad were sometimes whipped. During the 18th century, books that were considered offensive were whipped, usually before being burnt. Uh, apparently this was particularly true uh, in Puritan communities in New England. And the second truth is that the big book of lesbian horse stories <laughs> is a book available on Amazon by Elisa Serkis. One reviewer comments, not as arousing as the title would have you believe. <laughs> Plus, it is no larger than a regular-sized book of lesbian horse stories. <laughs> uh, and that means, Lou, you've scored two points. In 2002, Berlin psychologist Gerhard Reibmann published a book called Understanding Yourself Through Your Navel in which he identified six kinds of belly button, each linked to a personality type. You may be curious to dip into it, but the content is mostly fluff. <laughs> it's now the turn of Graham Garden. Graham, your subject is spiders. Eight-legged, silk-producing arachnids, which typically create webs to catch insects for food. Off you go, Graham. In the Brazilian rainforest, the great orb tarantula spider spins a web big enough and strong enough to catch rabbits. As the tarantula doesn't eat rabbits, this is a great inconvenience to all concerned. <laughs> the black widow spider is so named because it runs a life insurance company in Scotland. <laughs> Can I just say what a lovely radio voice he's got, hasn't he? Yes, Graham, you could consider working in radio. <laughs> I'll, I'll be closing my eyes now to experience it to the full. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> right. Oh, lovely. <laughs> oh. More, <So>. more. <laughs> Spiders evolved 100 million years before flies. So what did they eat? Sorry, Lou. did you get a lot of voiceover work, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Do you, though? Because it's really not, good not money, enough. isn't it? Would you be available? <laughs> <laughs> you ever think about doing a nighttime meditation sleep tape to sort of lull me off? <laughs> I, I would like to say that it remains the show's aspiration that some of the listeners remain awake. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a goal. <laughs> so, Graham, do you reckon if you had a different management, do you reckon you would get more voice on board? <laughs> yeah, I've done lots. I, I used to be the fox of Fox's Glassy Mint. Oh, wow. <laughs> Spiders evolved 100 million years before flies. <laughs> So what did they eat? It was still 120 million years before sandwiches. <laughs> the male scorpion fly has no fear of predators as he will casually swat away any threatening spider with his penis. <laughs> the female scorpion fly has no such defence and so likes to hang out with a well-endowed companion. A baby spider is called a spider baby. Spiders that you might see around the home in the UK today include the copper long legs, the hairy scuttler, and Bulmer's original spider. <laughs> in the Middle Ages, spiders were applied to the eyes to cure deafness. And to this Penny. day. <laughs> Them were strange times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not that strange. <laughs> and to this day in Kentucky, they eat spiders on bread and butter as a cure for constipation. Penny. See, I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> uh, that one is true. Oh. Yes. 
In part of Western Kentucky, for the relief of constipation, the belief is that spiders should be eaten, quote, in handfuls, end quote, on bread and butter. Great. Sometimes you'll see a spider sitting in the corner of its web plucking the strands because, believe it or not, spiders tune their webs like guitars or banjos. In the southern... Lou. Yes. What? I'm, I'm not sure that uh, I do well, reckon. I, I was very confident actually going in on that. And then Graham said, what? <laughs> with the tone that my stepdad takes with me. <laughs> and now I'm starting to... Think. No, you're, but you're right. You just infuriated him. Yes! By, by exactly like directly. my stepdad. Yeah. <laughs> yes, researchers at Oxford University's Department of Engineering Science have found that web-dwelling spiders have poor vision and rely almost exclusively on web vibrations for their view of the world. As a consequence, their webs are superbly tuned instruments, and the type of information sent along the silken strands can be controlled by adjusting tension and stiffness, essentially like tuning a guitar or violin. The movie Spider-Man vs. Spider-Woman was never completed because halfway through the shooting, she ate him. <laughs> UK house spiders include the Pink Prowler, the Tom Noddy, and the Jumping Shelob. In 1987, while Nicholas Witchell was reading the BBC News, a large house spider crawled up his trouser leg. Witchell calmly carried on with the bulletin while deftly removing his trousers, socks, shoes, and underpants under the desk. Sue Lawley, sitting next to him, said she was most impressed to see him pull it off. <laughs> Bill Giles, waiting to give the weather forecast, controversially claimed he had seen no spider. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of Graham's lecture. <laughs> At the end of that round, Graham, you've managed to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel which are that spiders evolved 100 million years before flies. Um, the evolution of spiders has been going on for at least 380 million years since the first true spiders evolved from their crab-like ancestors. The first true flies known are from the Middle Triassic period, which is around 240 million years ago. The second truth is that the male scorpion fly has no fear of predators as he will casually swat away any threatening spider with his penis. <laughs> male scorpion flies have a long, bulbous penis resembling a scorpion sting, which they also use as a weapon to whack off a predator. <laughs> like a spider. And the third truth is that UK house spiders include the pink prowler. Unobs domesticus, or the pink prowler, is one of several spiders that are virtually exclusive to houses. And that means, Graham, you've scored three points. <laughs> Which brings us to the final scores. In fourth place, <laughs> with minus 11 points, <laughs> we have Henning Vane. <laughs> In third place, with minus five points, it's Lou Sanders. <laughs> In second place, with three points, it's Graham Garden. In first place, with an unassailable five points, is this week's winner, John Finnamore. That's about it for this week. Goodbye. The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists John Finnamore, Graham Garden, Lou Sanders and Henning Vane. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and Colin Swash, and the producer was Richard Turner. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.